BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, Scott. Thanks for joining us. We have a question about the B in your name. Uh Uh-huh. Should we use it? Yes, please. Okay. What does it stand for? I'll never tell you, but um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Jeremy Allen White, most recently seen prancing around in his underwear in a Calvin Klein ad, but there's other Jeremy Whites out there, so i got to differentiate. Okay. This is Political Breakdown from KQED in San Francisco. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, another Republican meltdown in Washington, where Mike Johnson, who replaced Kevin McCarthy as Speaker, fails to corral the votes for a long-promised impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, and in part due to a somewhat surprising defection from a conservative House member from California. This border crisis can't be fixed by replacing one left-wing official with another. It can only be fixed by the American people at the ballot box. And speaking of the former speaker, the congressional race to replace him in Kern County is getting nasty as MAGA Republicans pile on to McCarthy's anointed successor, Assemblymember Vince Fong. Plus, there's a new leader in the state Senate as North Coast Democrat Mike McGuire takes the gavel from outgoing President Pro Tem Tony Atkins. A transition, by the way, that was much smoother and way less contentious than last year's changing in the guard to the new Assembly Speaker Robert Rivas. Joining us from Sacramento to talk all of this over is Jeremy B. White, senior political reporter for Politico. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, Scott. Pleasure to be here. Good to have you. So, 27 shopping days left before the March 5th primary. Uh, Of course, ballots have been mailed out. People are already voting. Uh, And one of the races you've been writing about is that open congressional seat down in Bakersfield that I alluded to a moment ago. Kevin McCarthy vacated it early when he left Congress um, after being removed from the speaker's job by his Republican colleagues. Um, So tell us about the dynamics in that race. This has been somewhat troubled for Vince Fong from the get-go. It has been a very chaotic race, to your point, Scott. Kevin McCarthy's abrupt retirement set off a scramble. His presumed uh, choice and frontrunner bowed out at the last minute. So Assemblyman Vince Fong, who had worked for McCarthy as his district director, was out and then he was in. There's a whole court fight over that. But beyond the legal and political drama there, what I find really interesting about this race 
is the ways in which those dynamics that we're seeing play out in one of California's only really red districts are in a lot of ways a microcosm of of some of the forces that brought about Kevin McCarthy's downfall. There's no doubt that Vince Fong has a lot of assets as a guy with strong name ID and endorsement from both Kevin McCarthy and a ton of House Republicans. And yet there's a real sort of anti-establishment streak in the party right now, um, which ties into the sort of pro-Trump folks who were skeptical of Kevin McCarthy and, and in a lot of cases saw him as part of this sort of feckless, not sufficiently pro-Trump Republican establishment. Some of those same folks are resisting Vince Fong and backing other candidates. I mean, this really does show you like how it is challenging to be a Republican candidate these days, right? Nobody's going to accuse McCarthy and Vince Fong of being moderates or, you know, sort of like Democratic allies. Um, And yet, I think to Jeremy's point, you see these very hard right MAGA candidates really going after him and really sort of sowing this distrust that started with McCarthy. I mean, what I found interesting about your story, Jeremy, was like, for years, we've really seen a lot of support in that district for McCarthy and spite of this back and forth with Trump. And, you know, there was this sense of like a lot of pride in having somebody from Bakersfield be the speaker, be the leader even before that. And it seems like there's that's cracking a little bit. Like you see with even within the electorate, some people who I think stayed with McCarthy for years being like, I'm not just going to go for Fong because he says so. Yeah. And Jeremy, I wonder, like, how much do you think the fact that McCarthy quit, you know, has has affected the dynamics and the people, the way people down there are feeling about him now? I think people certainly notice, Scott, uh, to that point. I think Marisa's right that there is a lot of pride in that district, that a guy, you know, a hometown boy in Kevin McCarthy rose from a part of California that rarely has much power in the state to national prominence. At the same time, he quit after being pretty publicly embarrassed and forced out of his job. And um, there are some folks down there who look at that some of whom are already feeling like he was maybe a little detached from the district and focused on other matters and say, why would we choose the anointed successor of somebody who limped away from this job after being dealt this big defeat? And so certainly there are folks down there who I think still support Kevin McCarthy and will be inclined to support the guy he picks. But I think bigger picture, there is some resistance because of that. And remember, Just as Kevin McCarthy is sort of trying to pass that baton to Vince Fong, Kevin McCarthy comes from this longer lineage that includes former Congressman Bill Thomas, who pretty publicly repudiated Kevin McCarthy over his role in the January 6th riots or his response, I should say. And so uh, there's just a lot of ferment in that district and and, um, desire among some people for something new, something that's not that political machine in Kern County. I mean, it's so interesting, too, to see, like, how some of these folks are trying to out-maga each other. I mean, I just keep going back to, like, how close Kevin McCarthy was to Trump for so long and how he's been battered by both sides, right? Like, you saw his – he was the protege of a longtime uh, member of Congress, Bill Thomas, who really savaged him after his behavior following the January 6th insurrection and kind of, you know, first coming out after Trump and then sort of walking that back. Um, And so it's like, I think that sort of speaks to this. Like, if you are not like you're either fully with Trump or you have to be a never Trumper. Well, I do wonder, though, Jeremy, I don't know if you've seen any polling in that race. I have not. And I wonder if this is sort of the political class talking about this because it's interesting to us. But do we have a sense yet that voters really, uh, you know, feel this way or do we have to wait for the election? 
The polling I've seen certainly indicates that Vince Fong is the front runner right now. But remember, under the top two primary system, we could very well see a runoff between Vince Fong and another Republican like Tulare County Sheriff Mike Boudreaux, who has gotten some law enforcement support and has drawn some of the sort of folks who we discussed who are uh, disillusioned with Kevin McCarthy and want something new. If it's one of the Democrats running in the race in Vince Fong in November, Vince Fong's your next congressman, given the nature of this district. But if we get Vince Fong versus another Republican and some of the sort of anti-McCarthy vote or whatever you want to call it consolidates behind that other Republican, then things could be very interesting. So as I said, given you know his name identification, the money, those endorsements do carry weight with a lot of folks. I think Vince Fong's in a good position certainly to get into the general election. My big question is, who is he going to be facing? Yeah. I want to ask a question about uh, that vote by Tom McClintock. We can out him now as the Republican who we heard at the top of the show. Um, Tom McClintock is a a conservative Republican who joined a couple of other uh, Republicans and all the Democrats in rejecting that impeachment uh, effort by uh, Mike Johnson and the Freedom Caucus and the most conservative members of the House. Um, Based on what you know about Tom McClintock, Jeremy, how surprising was that vote? I mean, it really (laughs) made the Republicans look very bad. You know, Tom McClintock is undoubtedly a conservative Republican. (laughs) I don't think there's any hard conservative. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. But I think he's also a guy who has had an independent streak. And if you're thinking about it electorally, Democrats have been trying to get Tom McClintock out for I don't know how many cycles. And he is as ensconced in that district, I think, as any of the remaining California Republicans are, which I think gives him some political freedom to do that type of thing, I think he has a little more insulation from that type of blowback that uh, Republicans might get for breaking with uh, the party in, in those ways. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, he's a McClintock's a guy who's been around for a long time and has sort of carved out his own sort of um, reputation and, and way of going about things. I, I don't think there's any doubt, though, as Marisa's reaction, I think illustrates that he is a conservative Republican, even if he broke with the party on this one. Yeah, and I think there's probably, uh, probably wasn't in the mood to be lectured by uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, He told her to read the Constitution. Uh, He's clearly not a supporter of Mayorkas and thinks he's doing a horrible job as Homeland Security Secretary. But he said, and I'm quoting here, uh, this really dumbs down the grounds for impeachment. And so uh, he wasn't going to go along with that, but uh, certainly no fan of Mayorkas. All right, we're going to take uh, a quick break. And when we return, we're going to continue our conversation with Jeremy B. White from Politico. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. 
Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. We're talking to Politico's Jeremy B. White, who is up in Sacramento. We were talking about a moment ago about the Mayorkas uh, impeachment going down in flames. And uh, we didn't talk about Marisa Al Green, the Democrat from <laughs> yes. Texas, who uh, is also a bit of a maverick uh, and showed up to vote uh, kind of reminiscent. And I, I don't know, Jeremy, if all, who will remember this? Pete Wilson, way back when, when he was in the Senate, they brought him in on a stretcher to <laughs> yeah. vote. This was like a peak Hollywood moment, I think, last night. I mean, really and really, if you listen to a lot of Democrats talk about it, they talk about the Pelosi playbook, talking, of course, about Nancy Pelosi, who's sort of, as she likes to call herself, a master legislator. Um, But yeah, they essentially sort of outwitted Speaker Johnson and leadership. Um, I think the Republicans thought that Green was going to stay in his hospital bed where he was supposed (laughs) to be. Instead, he took an Uber over, stayed off the floor until that Mayorkas vote, and essentially came on, voted against impeachment, and tied up the whole thing. Um, And it really just is like one of those moments where, I mean, if nothing else, it it just made the speaker look really bad. Republicans are promising that they're going to come back and be able to get uh, this pretty unprecedented impeachment through, which, of course, is not going to go anywhere in the democratically led Senate. Um, But it really it it is it it is a little moment of drama, let's say. I got to say, Marisa, as somebody who, like you and Scott, has watched a lot of floor votes that are basically foregone conclusions and people give their speeches and then the outcomes what you knew it was going to be i love a little drama i, I love a little last minute twist who could who wouldn't be interested in that just as the yeah well in addition to being a master legislator nancy pelosi always said the most important part of being speaker was math you know you got to know how to count mm-hmm. and this kind of thing never really happened to her if she didn't have the votes she didn't bring it out to the floor for a vote. Well, right, because this wasn't just as, I mean, we were talking about, and I would love to go back to McClintock for a moment here. I mean, first of all, I think we should put in context that this is an unprecedented impeachment because there's nothing that they're accusing Mayorkas of that's actually sort of these high crimes and misdemeanors. It is really looks like it's around policy differences. And I think a lot of conservative scholars have said the same thing. That's not just a partisan argument. Um, And you saw that in someone like McClintock, who I think it's worth mentioning, also voted for, you know, to certify the election right back in 2020. Um, He or 2021, rather, Um, he, I think, has a lot of sort of constitutional principles that maybe other members of the party are sort of willing to put aside in a way. Um, And so it wasn't just a miscalculation on the point of the speaker that Green would be there or not. I think it also seemed like maybe a miscalculation on whether a couple of these members would defect on his side of the aisle. Well, and Jeremy, speaking of miscalculations, the other thing that happened yesterday is that after the Senate came up with a bipartisan deal on immigration and border security, uh, the House quickly dismissed it. It didn't, it, something that they had demanded themselves in in order to tie it to Ukraine and Israel vote, uh, funding. Uh, how does this make them look? I mean, is this the kind of thing that's just an inside the beltway thing or are people paying attention, do you think? I never know as somebody who swims in these same political waters how much your average citizen cares or is paying attention. But I think we've seen this story before in which many different versions of compromises tend to get blown up 
in large part by the party's right wing. And it does sort of fuel the sense that nothing is able to pass this Congress. And, and, and I think there are certainly some voters who wonder, you know, is is this deadlock breakable or is this just the nature of this incredibly partisan house in which, you know, the party in control, the Republicans have a, a very vocal and um, uh, powerful Republican or right wing faction. But I also think it shows another miscalculation, you know, by the GOP in Washington, which is they asked for this border deal. I mean, and then they sort of thought that they were going to be painting Democrats into a corner and instead uh, you know, President Biden and Democratic leaders said, fine, let's do it. Let's do one that's only border security. You know, this doesn't have a pathway to citizenship. This doesn't address DACA recipients, DREAMers. Um, it's really, in a lot of ways, a Republican wish list. And I think the question now is, like, can Democrats actually message that? I mean, Chuck Schumer, the uh, majority leader in the Senate, had a great quote today where he said, I urge Republicans to take yes for an answer. And we saw them already vote down, um, you know, this this border deal that tied to Ukraine funding and Israeli funding. Um, there's going to be a separate vote just on the foreign aid. Uh, it may have happened, actually, by the time uh, you, you hear this podcast. But, you know, it really is, I think, uh, an interesting place because you've just seen the political machinations and the heads of Democrats really turn and go, fine, let's take this border deal. I, I loved the headline in the New York Times yesterday. It was uh, Republicans set a trap, period. And then they fell into it. You know, they sort of insisted on all these conditions. And then Biden and the Democrats said, OK, fine called the bluff and uh, moved on. Okay, let's uh, let's go back to Sacramento, Jeremy, where you, uh, you and your colleagues up there are keeping a very close eye on everything happening. And we had a transition in power in the state Senate. Uh, Tony Atkins handing off the gavel to Mike McGuire, a Democrat from the northern part of the state. Um, what's the significance of that, do you think? And uh, you've had a chance, I know, to talk with him on many occasions. What's What are your thoughts about his uh, coming leadership? I think the leadership transitions in the legislature are significant not because the party changes. It's always been a Democrat to a Democrat, at least in the last several iterations. But what matters is who the leader is and who they bring along with them, because those are the people who are going to be appointed the chairs of influential committees, which uh, has a huge impact on the outcome and what bills get voted on and what bills make it to the floor in what form. And so I think certainly people are watching to see which loyalists Mike McGuire puts atop important committees like the budget and the appropriations committee. I think, Scott, you set it up pretty well earlier, as opposed to what we saw in the other house, the assembly, where there was this extremely contentious, protracted fight over the speakership. Mike McGuire is a guy who is seen as uh, an ally and a lieutenant of the now former Senate leader, Tony Atkins, who's now running for governor, somebody who was very much, I think, seen as a sort of transition short-term leader. He's turned out in 2026, which means the folks who are thinking about being pro-tem after him, I can guarantee you, are already gaming out some moves. And so it'll be interesting to see what he does with that short runway, inheriting a huge budget deficit that he's going to be one of the top negotiators over how to close, which is going to involve a lot of saying no to his members. But I think generally speaking, he is somebody who is fairly well respected by his colleagues, seen as an extremely hard worker and and as opposed to what we saw again in the assembly, which was more of a break with the previous speaker. I think this is a little more of a continuity thing. Marisa, you know, uh, you talked to Speaker Rendon, you and Guy Marzarati after, uh, I think it was after he'd left or he was about to leave the speakership. And he was, you sensed, uh, I think, a little bit of bitter, lingering bitterness. How much, I'm wondering, do you think that the, 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 the contrast in the Senate has to do with personality, 
Brendan versus Rivas, or the House, which, you know, the, the, the Assembly is bigger, mm-hmm. it's more maybe a broader kind of range of perspectives Bigger tents that they yeah. have to deal with. I think it's a little of both, right? I mean, Rendon really came in with a very different style than a lot of the sort of most storied speakerships in uh, California, thinking back to Willie Brown, really this like, they call him the Ayatollah of the Assembly. I mean, he really like knew everything that was happening in every corner of that building. Uh, Several years back, John Perez from L.A. was a very sort of heavy handed speaker. And there was a lot of pushback to that. So I think part of Rendon's approach was his personality sort of paired with the sense when he was elected that the people wanted maybe a little bit less of that heavy handedness. but the funny thing is, it's not like Tony Acton ruled with an iron fist. I think she just had a different style and had relationships um, that maybe made it a little easier to do that. But I think, yeah, I, I don't think you can totally blame that just on like, you know, Rendon's personality or something else. I think there are differences in the houses and we've seen them switch over the years. You know, the Senate used to be almost the more conservative body. And in some ways with redistricting and top two primaries, some of that caution has almost shifted over to the assembly and we see kind of more progressive um, broad policy uh, proposals, I think, getting an easier run in the Senate. And to your point, I mean, there's only 40 of them compared to 120. You know, hurting cats is uh, easier if there's fewer cats, <laughs> exactly. I would say. Um, Jeremy, what are your thoughts? You mentioned the budget deficit, which we don't know exactly what that number is going to end up being. It's somewhere north of uh, 30 or $40 billion. Um, what does it mean for a new person coming in, sort of like Rivas in the Assembly, uh, where the first thing they have to do is, you know, give out the bad news and cut the budget after years of, you know, surpluses? It certainly puts you in a challenging position where, again, I think a lot of being the leader is is saying no to your members sometimes, whether that's the budget or a bill that they really want. And you have to say, look, I just don't think that's going to happen. I don't think the votes are there. I don't think it's good politically, whatever it might be. One interesting dynamic, though, is that a lot of members who have uh, served in recent years have only known budget surpluses um, since um, – you know, the last recession and, and and the deficits that came with that, we've seen a string of, of very uh, abundant budget years. And so this series of downturns is a recent thing. And it also coincides with a lot of new members coming in. And so now you're getting a lot of first year or I should say second year members in the assembly, for example, who came in during a deficit. And so the lived experience and, and therefore the expectations of these members is shifting. But remember, you're not just dealing as leader with your members. You're dealing with every interest group in California that's coming to you and saying, don't cut my program. You made a commitment to us, whether that's environmentalists, organized labor, school districts, what have you. And so, um, you know, there's going to have to be some painful decisions as with any budget deficit. And um, it's certainly a, a challenging position for, for Mike McGuire to, to, to jump into. One of the big issues that I keep hearing about from friends, you know, who had their home home insurance canceled or they couldn't get or they had to pay an exorbitant amount for insurance on a house they bought. Um, that would seem to be like one of the issues that really is a crisis, Marisa, up there. And uh, it's not easily solved. It's not necessarily a budgetary issue, you know, but it, 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 it is a complicated regulatory issue. Yeah. And I mean, last year we did see some engagement um, led in part by folks like Senator Bill Dodd from the North Bay uh, here in the Bay Area, you know, because I think someone like him and other people who have had really devastating wildfires are very aware of this and have already been dealing with these conversations. 
Um, but really, that engagement didn't happen until the end of the session. And so I do think you have to ask the question, will it happen earlier? Um, I mean, they literally said they ran out of time last year. I do think it's an open question as to how much appetite there is to tackle that when you have all these other challenging issues, including the budget deficit. But it, it, I mean, it is, to your point, it is a crisis and it's going to affect everybody. I mean, I really think that there's interesting questions as to whether the banks are going to get involved. I mean, they're the ones holding the loans on most of these homes. Um, and at a certain point, it, it, something does have to give. Um, you know, I think we could also sort of pair that conversation with does the legislature take on um, the utility prices, which are really going up in big ways, especially folks in PG&E um, and some of these other investor and utility territories. And I think a lot of uh, it, it's sticky, it's sticky for them. It is sticky. And Bill Dodd, the senator from uh, Napa, and McGuire, Senator McGuire, quite close. They both represent sort of wine country. And I wonder if uh, I'm sure that they've had conversations, Jeremy, about both of those topics. Uh, certainly, Senator Dodd has taken the lead on on some of those things. Yeah, and to your point, they're close allies. Bill Dodd was certainly one of the senators who was helping to, to collect votes for Mike McGuire. This is a thing that I think is personal for Mike McGuire as well. I mean, his district has dealt with so many devastating wildfires. It's a huge district with a lot of folks who are in some of those high-risk areas, the same types of places that are being hit by um, those spiraling rates and difficulty obtaining insurance. So I think to your earlier question about what to expect from a new leader, I think every leader also, of course, brings their priorities that come from their district and their lived experience. And so certainly I think somebody like Mike McGuire has lived it when it comes to wildfires and all of the externalities that come with that, including insurance rates. And so I, I have no doubt that this is an issue that's that's very important to him. That said, as Marisa said, it's a very sticky one. They took a crack at it last year. They couldn't quite get it done. Um, this is certainly not something with an easy solution. Another big issue is uh, the rise of AI, artificial intelligence. Uh, some members like uh, Rebecca Bauer-Cahan have really taken the lead on trying to craft some kind of regulation, sort of building on President Biden's executive order. That, But then again, I mean, that is another super complicated issue with very strong interest groups on all sides of that. Um, do you have any sense, Jeremy, of where, like, where's the, how's the governor thinking about this, uh, if at all? It's a great question. Uh, Governor Newsom did put out an executive order and he has talked about trying to get ahead of this. And honestly, what I think you hear from a lot of Democrats of we see opportunity but also peril and we want to make sure that we're nurturing this technology in a way uh, that doesn't stifle this promising industry, which has been big in San Francisco, for example. But I think there's a real sense of not letting it get ahead of the regulation, as we saw with social media, for example, a thing lawmakers bring up a lot in this context. You know, my colleagues and I have a spreadsheet of artificial intelligence bills in Sacramento. I think we're up to 15 or 16 so far wow. this year. Rebecca Bauer-Cahan, as you mentioned, Scott, is dealing with uh, biases and discrimination and algorithms. We have legislation dealing with jobs, dealing with um, misinformation in elections, dealing with how the state uses technology, a big focus for Gavin Newsom. So there are so many different facets of this. Um, I expect we're going to see a ton of activity on it this year. 
I doubt all 15 of those bills are going to make it into law, but um, there's no doubt that it's of high interest to lawmakers and the governor. Totally. And I know they can they can sort of take a look at what the EU is doing. They tend to be ahead of the United States on a lot of these issues. But, Marisa, you do get the sense that uh, it's really hard to get ahead of the technologies. You know, these lawmakers are not steeped in this, despite all their, you know, well, advisors yeah. and all, all the rest. And like social media, it is brand new, right? And so there's a lot of sort of unintended consequences, things we haven't even considered yet. Um, But I do think, to Jeremy's point, this is actually being broached much earlier than we saw the social media conversations being broached. I think that there are a lot of valid concerns that in part have been raised by the AI industry themselves. Um, And so you might have a little bit more buy-in to actually collaborating on this than we saw with the social media companies who, of course, are still holding all regulators at an arm's length. Yeah. Well, a lot of lessons to be learned from what we did or didn't do or did too late with social media. All right. Jeremy B. White from Politico. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. And Marisa, we've got to talk up the voter guide uh, yes. because people have their ballots. They, some people do if you're voting by mail. Uh, it's kqd.org slash voter guide and all the information on the ballot measures and a lot of the local races as well as the Senate race. Yeah, I did a deep dive into the U.S. Senate race we've been talking about. Uh, first time we've had an open seat, uh, well, not seat in quite some time. And I just... Just a wealth of information. I really encourage folks to check it out because you got your ballot. And even me, I'll do this stuff every day. And I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know about that thing. What is that? Yeah, maybe it shouldn't be on the ballot. If it's that <laughs> complicated. That's <laughs> Okay. That is a wrap for Wednesday, February 7th. Political Breakdown is a production of KQED. Our engineer is Seal Muller and our producer is Izzy Bloom. For Marisa Lagos and all of us here at KQED, I'm Scott Schaefer. Thank you so much for listening. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.